This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. In 1778, the greatest figure in the era of European seagoing exploration, Captain James Cook, sailed along the coast of Alaska. The Tlingit people he met brought him hides of an animal he had never seen, that long, shaggy, pure white fur. And the good captain assumed that these were the hides of some kind of white bear. Well, he was mistaken. They were from an animal that was very well known by the native people, but it was going to remain largely a mystery to European and American scientists for another century or so, at least until after 1900, because this animal lives on the high, rugged, sheer-walled mountains, some of the remotest, most inaccessible terrain along the entire Alaska coast. And that's where I've got myself right now. Believe you me, it feels rugged and it feels sheer-walled. I'm perched at the edge of a cliffside that drops about a thousand feet almost straight down into the waters of Glacier Bay. This isn't the kind of place that I feel exactly comfortable and at home in, unlike the creatures that I have come up here looking for. Well, more than a century later, the prospector Joe Juno, whose name you will recognize in a certain Alaskan town, and his partner Richard Harris were also mistaken about this animal. They shot a few near the future site of the capital city of Juneau, and they called that place Sheep Creek. Well, both Cook and the two prospectors had encountered one of North America's most beautiful and unusual wild animals, the mountain goat. The mountain goat is well-named, both for its chosen home and for its relatedness to the familiar domesticated goat. Both of these animals belong to a group that taxonomists call the subfamily Caprinae. It includes about 25 species of mostly wild goat-like animals that live in the high mountains of Europe and Asia especially. The closest relatives of our mountain goat are the European chamois and an Asian animal called the mountain antelope. The subfamily Caprinae also includes our doll sheep that is found in the interior mountains of Alaska, sometimes near areas that are frequented by mountain goats, but usually they're in separate territories. Surprisingly, the muskox also belongs to this same group, the Caprinae, you know, that long-haired, gray, remarkable ox-like critter that lives on the Arctic tundra of Alaska and Canada. Ancestral mountain goats came from Asia. They crossed the Bering Land Bridge into Alaska and North America about 100,000 years ago. During the Ice Age, the cold glacial climate allowed these thickly furred animals to spread as far south as Arizona and New Mexico. But as the post-glacial climate warmed, mountain goats retreated back north and up into the high, high mountain country. They live now in 
steep, lofty mountain ranges in the northwestern part of North America, Montana, Idaho, Washington, British Columbia, Alberta, the Yukon Territory, and of course here in Alaska. In Alaska, mountain goats live near the coast from southeast on up to the Wrangell Mountains, the Chugach Range, the Kenai Peninsula. There's also a small inland population of mountain goats near Talkeetna, close to Denali National Park. And there's something about mountain goats, and where I'm sitting right now, I can feel what that something might be that's inspired people to spread these animals beyond where they've gotten on their own. There have been successful transplants to Kodiak Island, also Baranoff and Revila Gigedo Islands in southeastern Alaska. And then they've been shipped around a bit in the lower 48 states, too. There's a bunch of transplanted mountain goats on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. Quite controversial. They're in a national park there that some people believe they shouldn't be in because they're exotic there. And the Black Hills of South Dakota also have transplanted mountain goats. Well, mountain goats live in a very small part of the world, but they're pretty abundant wherever they're found. They have very successfully adapted to life in a formidable, let me tell you, a really formidable environment. Bitterly cold winters, powerful winds, blizzards, deep snow, sparse alpine vegetation, and as I'm experiencing today in mountain goat country, passing rain squalls and gusty chilly winds. Got those gusts kind of rumbling around me right now. This is one of those places that is much favored by mountain goats, though I'm here in what would be called an easy time of the year. I'm, as I mentioned, on the slope of a mountain. It's not a really big mountain. It's about a thousand feet high. It's called Gloomy Knoll, and it's on the shore of Glacier Bay in Glacier Bay National Park. Gloomy Knoll, I don't think, is particularly well named. It's not very gloomy. It's very, very bright, smooth, almost sometimes polished looking limestone rock. Now, just about a hundred yards straight out in front of me, apparently completely unbothered by anything as mild as a breezy day with the temperature maybe around 50 degrees, is a group of four mountain goats. You could probably see these things a mile away, if not more, because they are so brilliant white. They look like patches of snow on this landscape where the snow has long since gone away. And they're laying on little rocky ledges and gazing placidly out over this same view that I think we must all see as a stunning, almost surreal view of mountain beauty. And oh, look at this. Here is another mountain goat. I've been sitting here for quite a while and I didn't realize there was another one. So there's now five of them out in front of me. The other one just kind of stood up. It was laying down like the others, but it was behind just a little bit of a ledge. And it's now standing right in between two large mountain goats down at the bottom. And then the middle one that just stood up is about 20 yards up from those, and then another 20 yards higher is a nanny, or female mother mountain goat, and her little kid, her little about half-grown baby mountain goat. What an extraordinary world these animals live in. 
absolute pure snowy white. They're about three to four feet tall when they're fully grown. They weigh 150 to 300 pounds. The males, the billies, are larger than the nannies, the females. Their build is really unusual, really singular. You can't mistake a mountain goat for anything else. First of all, it's angular. They're all kind of sharp edges, as if there's a boniness to them. They're stocky. They have a very hefty build, a strikingly big chest, and heavy muscled shoulders, and very short-looking, thick legs, a solid animal. Their head I can look now at that one that just stood up. I can see its head very clearly. Their head is narrow. It's looking off kind of toward the left right now. I can see that narrow head. And interestingly, their ears, quite unusual. They're not rounded ears like a doll sheep or like a deer. They're pointed. They're sort of devilish looking ears. They have a shaggy white beard. If you're really close to a mountain goat, you can see they have brown eyes with a horizontal rectangular shaped very large pupil. You want to know what that's like? Just find a picture of a domesticated goat and look at its eyes. It's very similar. Both sexes of mountain goats have curved slender jet black horns. They're about 10 or 12 inches long. I can see that all of the goats out in front of me, including the small one, have these lovely curved horns. They're not like a doll sheep that has horns that curve all the way around. These just have a graceful backward curve. The horns never shed. Unlike the antlers of moose, caribou, deer, they hold their horns permanently. It's very, very hard to tell the billies from the nannies, except when the females are with their young, with their kids. So I only know for sure that there's one female out there. The one that has her kid actually just snuggled right up next to her. And as they lay down, their fur kind of flows out over the ground as if it makes a lovely little afghan or quilt that lays right out along the ground and really insulates them well. The most obvious characteristic of these sheep is that brilliant white woolly coat. The hair is up to six inches long on the body and the shoulders and the neck and on the upper legs. But when they stand, as the one goat is doing, you go, oh, another one just stood up now, stood up and is walking toward me. Oh, be still my beating heart. Oh, and there's another one that I hadn't seen. If these goats would just walk toward me, if I only knew how to call them in or attract them. But I feel incredibly lucky just to be this close to them. And the one that just appeared that I didn't see before happens to be another kid. So now I know there are two females with kids. And I'm going to guess the other two are probably females too because of the way the social lives of mountain goats work. Now when they stand, you see that long fur goes down the upper part of their leg. And then it's very short on the lower legs. And so it looks kind of like they're wearing pantaloons. The fur gets very, very long in the winter. Very thick, dense, warm, protective cloak. And oh, do they need it. So now I'm looking at six mountain goats. And all of them, except the nanny and her kid on the top ledge, are now standing and feeding. Just slowly moving around, feeding. One of them standing on an extremely steep rock, the sort of rock that you and I could not stand on without slipping. And that is a reflection of the brilliant, highly specialized, remarkable hooves of the mountain sheep. They have a hard outer shell, each hoof, and a rubbery concave inner pad. And that sticks to rocky 
surface. Then each hoof has two halves, and these halves move independently for better traction. So it's like a mountain goat has two suction cups on each foot, and that's why they can scramble around on terrain that even sitting here on my very wide, comfortable ledge, it's covered with small willows, soapberry bushes, dry ass, other little tundra plants. This thing I'm sitting on here would probably be like the prairies of Kansas to those mountain goats compared to the ledges where they spend most of their time. And I suppose that the secret to the mountain goats' success in this habitat are those hooves. All this specialized and perfected physical equipment is absolutely necessary to live in this extreme mountain habitat that the mountain goat has chosen. They nearly always live on a place like this, steep, rocky, cliff-bound terrain. And they're often quite close to high mountain meadows where they graze. Now, these goats in front of us at the moment are in a mix of this limestone rock and little green patches. So they have a really great situation. They can move easily from the protection of the very, very steep rocky slopes to these little cupped green pastures that they're using. And on the other side of this very, very steep slope overlooking Glacier Bay, there are larger meadows where they can feed. In summer, as now, we're sort of at the end of summer, the mountain goats eat tender, fresh grasses, sedges, flowering plants, low shrubs, like the ones that are all around my little perch here and all around where the goats are moving out now a little bit. The nanny and her kid at the upper part have moved. There's another one just close to her now that's standing on an absolutely vertical surface. How can that goat possibly be standing on that surface? I'm keeping my voice down just a little bit. They're pretty close to me in their straight downwind, and I fear that my voice might carry them off if they should hear me. Mountain goats are ruminants. This means they chew their cud, just like deer, moose, or cow. They re-chew food. Once they chew and swallow the food that they're eating right now. These goats are going to lie down like they were doing when we started talking about them here. They're going to lie down and they kind of erp that food up from their multi-chambered stomach and they re-chew it. This allows animals that are always worried about evading predators to graze and browse their food rather quickly and then find a safe secluded place. Remember I told you all those goats were sitting or lying on very steep ledges, well protected, so they could relax and not worry about predators when they weren't actually feeding. So they're stocking up on food, finding a good place, and then really working it down by rechewing it. Sometimes mountain goats will come down into the lower valleys, even in the summertime, to use mineral licks or to escape the heat by moving into shady forest. Generally, they will stay on the high wind-blown ridges like this one well into winter eating lichens, mosses, and shrubs that persist and that they can get even during these snowy, bitter times of year. Now, during the winter, in the middle of the winter, they're likely to move down into forested areas where their main winter food is hemlock. They also eat small shrubs and other plants that they can find in the sheltered forest floor. Mountain goats get very lethargic in the winter. They move as little as possible. They become almost as if they're hibernating. And they do this in order to burn minimal energy. Their metabolism slows way down. The same thing happens with deer, although to a lesser degree than with the mountain goats. Now the nanny, the first nanny and her kid, 
again about half her size, just sort of bouncing over some rocks and out into a very, very small pasture, stopping and feeding. The other nanny and her kid are climbing up a very, very steep slope, following. Everybody's fairly close together. All six of these goats now clustered up within about 20 yards of each other. Why in the world do mountain goats live on precipitous slopes like these instead of down in the lush meadows and valleys? I've been asking myself this question as I clambered up this mountain with my good friend Kim Hecox, who is a photographer and writer. He's off taking pictures somewhere. As we were coming up, I said, man, <laughs> I guess what we're learning is a good lesson in mountain goat psychology because mountain goats come here for one and only one reason and that is to be safe from predators. No other animal, not even the famously athletic doll sheep, can match the mountain goat's amazing strength and agility and boldness. Mountain goats can leap 10 feet or more from one tiny ledge to another one on a vertical cliff. They can frisk around on towering vertiginous cliffs like the ones that are just off to the left that make me get butterflies in my stomach and put my heart right in my throat just to look at them. Oh, everybody running, little scamper. The kids were doing a little bit of a scamper, these two little kids, a little kind of a frolic, the two of them together, while the adults just stand placidly watching them. I have now six mountain goats all beautifully silhouetted along a little ridge very close to each other, all of them facing out as if they're savoring the magnificent grandeur of Glacier Bay. Man, what a thing to see. They can leap from ledge to ledge, or they can pull themselves up on these tiny little ledges using their very powerful front legs and shoulders. Kim was telling me as we made our way up the mountainside that a friend had told him about watching a mountain goat that went out on a ledge that got skinnier and skinnier and skinnier and had nothing but a sheer vertical wall beneath it. Out it went. And he thought, what in the world is that goat going to do? To his astonishment, it planted its front legs firmly on that tiny little ledge just a few inches wide. And then it climbed up the vertical wall above with its hind legs as if it were doing a handstand, brought its hind legs down on the other side, and then walked back on that skinny little trail. Mountain goats must have a highly evolved psychology for heights. That's something I don't have. Man, I look out over this cliff here and it just it just makes me extremely uncomfortable. And what I'm looking at is nothing compared to where those goats are standing right now out here in front of me. Mountain goats are not especially swift. They don't need to be. But they have very keen eyesight. They can spot a predator or a hunter at a considerable distance. Nevertheless, mountain goats do fall prey, especially to wolves and bears. Now those are two predators that they have here in Glacier Bay National Park. And also, to cougars or mountain lions in other parts of the world. We don't have those. At least they're very, very scarce in Alaska. Mountain goats are especially vulnerable when they move away from these cliffs. And so the cliff is their security. The cliff is home. Now, once in a while, an eagle will also manage to snatch a small mountain goat kid. 
The goats sometimes pay a price for taking refuge on these very steep, lofty, precipitous edges of the world. The most common causes of death for a mountain goat, falling from cliffs, being killed by the highly intense winter storms, or being killed by avalanches. Many mountain goats have healed fractures and broken teeth from the falls that they take during their lives. Most mountain goats live about 10 to 12 years. 15 years old is a very old mountain goat. Now the society that mountain goats live in is matriarchal. Most of the year, the females dominate the males. The only exception is during the mating season when the males gain temporary and only temporary ascendancy. Otherwise, the nannies claim the best mountainside havens for themselves and for their kids. They use those sharp horns to keep the males in line or to drive them away. Mountain goat society is not very peaceful, as lovely as these animals are and as placid as they look at this moment. Biologists studying mountain goats down in Canada found that each goat had several conflicts per hour with other goats all year round. The males fight with each other, especially during the breeding season, as you'd expect, which is in November and December. They don't butt heads like doll sheep do, or even moose or deer, but they prefer to poke each other in the rear or in the belly. They often get puncture wounds in their hind quarters. Well, about five or six months after the fracas and flirtations of the mating season, the nannies give birth up on these slopes. In May, the female goes off to be alone. She finds a sheltered place like a rock overhang or a cave. I have such an overhang just to my right here as I look up. It's about 40 feet high. Looks like it would be a perfect little shelter for a mother mountain goat to have her child. Usually they have one kid, very rarely twins. Our two out here just have one kid. And when they're newly born, they weigh about six to seven pounds. Think about it. That's about the size of a house cat. No wonder an eagle can fly away with one. Within a few hours, that tiny little goat can keep up with its mom, and in a week or so, it romps and plays on rocky ledges with other mountain goat kids. The nannies and the kids then join together in little nursery groups. You often see loose flocks of 20 or 30 mountain goats on a high emerald meadow. They tend to be scattered around, though, not a big bunch of that many. Smaller groups, maybe five or ten, that mix and mingle and separate and rejoin with that larger group of 20 or 30. The billies live apart from the females all year round except during the mating season. You'll see them alone or in small bunches of maybe six or so. I think there are a couple of them on a very high mountain ridge across a valley from this mountain, this gloomy knoll that I'm on right now. The young ones stay with their mother through the winter and then comes the rude awakening. They're booted out when the new kid is born early the next summer. Mountain goats have lived around people for thousands and thousands of years. Native people trekked into the high country to hunt goats for meat, also for these beautiful, brilliant, snow-white hides that make very warm clothing. Tlingit people around the area of Haines, Alaska, are renowned for the skill and artistry of their Chilkat blankets, which are woven from goat wool. Oh man, looking at these goats right now, we've got a burst of sunshine over the mountain. All six goats standing there in plain sight about 150 yards away from me. And those coats, oh man, just eye-ringing whiteness in that fur. When John Muir 
traveled along the southeast Alaska coast, came right up here into Glacier Bay with Tlingit people. His guide, Tyene, described for him how people used dogs to chase and corner mountain goats so that the hunters could kill them at short range with spears. Must be an incredibly hard animal to hunt with those kinds of weapons. The inland Tlingit people up in what is today British Columbia and the Yukon Territory had special rituals to protect hunters from the perils of hunting these goats. Goats are still a prized game animal today, of course. Many Alaskans hunt them for meat and for these beautiful hides. Meat from young female goats is excellent. I know this from experience, eating delicious goat meat that was served up by a friend. An older female or any billy mountain goat likely to be very tough meat. It's best to grind this stuff up for burger or sausage. Although mountain goats are often pretty common where they're found, it's important to know they have a very slow reproductive rate. Just one kid, usually, born each year into this extremely tough and very dangerous environment. The little kid goats are vulnerable to predation or to starvation, especially during a severe winter. Goat herds are also susceptible to overharvest. Nowadays especially, the goats tend to be fairly docile. They feel secure in the high, rugged, rocky home where they stay. These goats have been watching me the whole time I've been sitting here, so they're highly vulnerable to powerful long-range rifles, especially if a hunter approaches them from above. Goats tend to watch for danger coming from below or parallel to them. For this reason, biologists know it's very important to regulate goat hunting conservatively and to avoid putting too much pressure on goat populations. This is especially true for goats that live near towns at relatively low elevations or near trails and roads. Another reason for the very conservative hunting season and bag limits for goats is that it's very, very hard to tell the males from the females. So it doesn't work to have the equivalent of a bulls only or bucks only season for mountain goats. Well, many Alaskans and tourists like me are excited just to have a look at a mountain goat, even if they're just white dots on the high cliffs or up in the alpine meadows. I have never been as close to a mountain goat as I've been today. A little while ago, as I was skirting out along this cliff looking for goats, I stumbled onto a nanny and her kid. They were about probably about 30 or 40 feet away from me when I saw him. We stood there, frozen, looking at each other, and then I backed away, and by the time I came to look again, they were just gone, poof, vanished. Well, we have plenty of chances to see mountain goats around Alaska. They're often visible from roads and waterways along the coast. In southeast Alaska, here in Glacier Bay, for example, the cruise ships, the tour ships come along up into Glacier Bay. I imagine a lot of people over the course of the past summer saw these mountain goats that I'm watching right now. Also in Prince William Sound, in the Chugach and Wrangell Mountains. Sometimes they even hang around near towns, like up on the mountains above the Mendenhall Valley near Juneau, or along the Chilkat and Chilkoot Valleys near Haines. If you see these white dots up on the mountain, how do you know if they're doll sheep or mountain goats? Well, you look for this blocky shape, the big crest, the shaggy coat, the conspicuous beard, all of which I'm seeing so beautifully in the sunshine right out in front of me now. Also, the coat of the mountain goat tends to be a brighter, purer white than the doll sheep coat, which has a little bit of a yellowish color to them. Well, the most exciting way to see mountain goats is to do what I've done today. Climb up 
high up into the Alpine with a good friend where you can share the incredible view with these creatures. And while you can also savor the thrill of seeing close up a wild animal that's found nowhere else in the world except the northwest corner of our continent. That's exactly what I'm doing. Keeping company with the real kings of the mountains. I feel like staying here as long as I possibly can. As the goats now in a little line are just streaming from the left to the right, actually, possibly, hmm, let me just hope, coming in my direction. I'm reminded of something that was written by John Muir, who loved this place where I am today, Glacier Bay. He said, I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out until sundown. For going out, I found, was really going in. Well, I'm going to stay in for as long as I possibly can. Then go find my buddy Kim and we'll make our way down this mountain before dark. And we'll leave these mountain goats to the fastness and glory of their home. I want to thank my good friends, Hank Lenfer and... Kim Hecox and Jake Jacoby for helping me to get here. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. Thank you so much for your good company. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited and produced by Lisa Bush, special consulting from Ken Fate, theme music by Outback, Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, the North Pacific Research Board, and Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohn. For more information about the show and to hear podcasts, go to EncountersNorth.org. 